Welcome to the By His Grace podcast. I am so excited to welcome Jess Ronnie here today. Jess is a mom and an author. She has eight kids, y'all. I don't even know how she gets anything else done, but she's got eight kids. She's got a blended family. She is the CEO of the Lucas Project and the host of Coffee with Caregivers. She's written a wonderful book called Blended with Grit and Grace. Just keep living when life is unexpected. Now, Jess and I met several months ago. The first time we had a conversation, I think we talked for probably an hour and a half. And I realized that this is somebody who has a lot of depth and we have a lot in common and could very well be fast friends. So I'm excited to bring her on today to talk about all of the amazing things that are happening in in her life right now. We have dreams, but our dreams don't always line up with our reality. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. So Jess, welcome to the By His Grace podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Excited to talk to you again. Yeah. So let's start this by sharing a little bit of your background story and and your journey that has led you to where you are now. Oh, goodness. Um, that's a long story. So I'll try to give you the cliff notes. I guess I feel like my story began in 2004 when I went to what I thought was a routine ultrasound appointment for my second child. And it was there that I found out that my unborn baby had a stroke in utero and there was very little hope. It was recommended that we terminate and try again. Um, the specialist said, you're young and healthy. You shouldn't have any problems getting pregnant. And there's just very little chance that this baby is going to survive. And my husband, Jason, and I decided to put the baby in the Lord's hands. Um, termination wasn't an option for us. And we were just going to have faith that God's will would be done. And August 12, 2004, um, I was induced. Lucas would not terminate himself. They kept telling me these babies have a way of um, spontaneously aborting and he just was going to hold on for dear life. And they cut my belly open from one side to the other and lifted him out. And he was screaming with life. Um, He did have a two-year-old size head at birth that required immediate surgery. But then two weeks later, um, after being in the NICU, the doctors handed us our baby and kind of said, good luck. (laughs) We were like, okay. So we went from, you know, a dead baby who will never survive to here's your baby, Godspeed. And that was, you know, our induction into the world of special needs parenting. Um, You know, people often ask me if that's like when I, like if I grieved through that process and I, I don't think I grieved, you know, bringing home my baby with special needs. It was more a grieving process throughout the pregnancy And then to go home with this live baby, I was ecstatic. I didn't really care what came along with it. I was just going home with a baby I was told was going to die this, you know, entire pregnancy. So we went home. It was really difficult. Lucas didn't sleep very well due to his head size. And I was constantly scared and he had low muscle tone and didn't eat very well. And finally, like at three, four years old, we started to get into the groove of life with Luke. And, um, that's when my story takes another turn. Uh, Jason and I had another baby daughter in 2007. And about six months after she was born, Jason began experiencing all these strange um, like side effects, vision loss, extreme weight loss. Um, and he kept going to specialist after specialist. And they said, you just have to get your sugar levels under control. 
He was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, which was so strange because he was like the epitome of health and fitness. He was a tennis professional, a gym owner, and a personal trainer. So like if there was anybody doing all the things right, it was him. And he just could not, you know, get his sugar levels under control. And one night I turned to him and just said, you know, are you feeling okay tonight? I got a quick run across town to my dad's house to pick up something because he would have good days and bad days. And he was like, yeah, I'm good. So I left the three kid or the three children in his care um, at the time, I believe a five-year-old Caleb, three-year-old baby Lucas, and like a six-month-old uh, Mabel and ran across town. And when I pulled into my dad's driveway, uh, my phone rang and I picked it up and it was Jason. He said, Jess, call 911. And the phone went dead. So I rushed back home um, to discover all these ambulances and cop cars in my driveway. Apparently, Jason had a seizure. But right before he passed out, he had enough sense to put a movie in for Caleb, put Lucas in his exorcisor and baby Mabel in her bouncy seat. And he seized until he passed out. Wow. Um, so that began the next leg of our journey. He was rushed to ER where they discovered a baseball sized brain tumor. Um, it was only a stage two at that point. So we were able to opt out of radiation and chemo and just told that he would need quarterly MRI appointments. And, um, in that next year, um, he just had a new lease on life and we found ourselves unexpectedly pregnant again, um, cause he was feeling real good. <laughs> and so, um, let me think what year this was, 2009. Um, I have my 20-week ultrasound appointment coming up for my fourth child, which is an extremely stressful period of time because of what I went through with Lucas. Lucas has been screaming and headbanging like crazy. Come to find out he has Chiari malformation, which in layman's terms meant that his spinal cord was growing into his brain. So he required surgery. And Jason is up for his quarterly MRI appointment all within the, like a 30 day period of time. So I go to my 20 week ultrasound appointment. Everything looks great. Lucas has his surgery recovers beautifully. Jason goes to his uh, quarterly MRI appointment and calls me on the phone and says, just the tumor's back. I have to check myself into ER immediately. Um, he checked himself into ER. I scrambled to find help with the kids. I rushed down to be beside him. He had an immediate surgery again, um, and this time the biopsy came back, uh, stage four glioblastoma. And I had done enough research to understand that that was a terminal diagnosis. Um, it meant about a 14-month life expectancy. So he went through all the treatments. We had our baby that September 2009. It was a baby boy, Joshua. And um, that year is a blur uh, between chemo and radiation and raising four children and one with profound special needs. I just was angry all the time. I just remember raging all the time. How is this my life? I just want a normal, boring life. This is not what I signed up for, Lord. You mean you didn't dream of all, all of these things to happen when you were uh, growing up? Right. It's every little girl's dream to, you know, walk this journey. And Jason passed away August 24. 2010. Um, and that was, it was an extremely dark period of life, but it was also like when you've gone through cancer for three years with your spouse and you're raising young children and one with profound special needs, I was extremely sad that he was gone, but also there was like a peace that I hadn't felt in a long time because when 
cancer is your taskmaster for so long to you know finally have that out of my life and to know that Jason received his ultimate healing in heaven. There was some peace in that as well, but also intense loneliness and just going, okay, Lord, now what? And he revealed his plan pretty quickly to me, you know, for the next leg of the journey. A couple months later, I brought all of the kids out on Halloween night to go trick-or-treating and, you know, just wanted to show the whole world I was doing fine, took all the pictures, posted them on Facebook and checked my blog later on that night, which I had been updating the masses, you know, throughout the years on what was going on in our life. And this stranger from Pennsylvania left a comment. She said, I have no idea why I'm doing this. I just feel led to tell you about this man in Oklahoma who lost his wife to brain cancer four days after Jason died. He has three young children and he's not doing very well. I just thought you could be a source of encouragement to him. So I went and found his blog, left a little comment, just, hey, I'm you know, in a similar situation. If you ever want to talk, you know, feel free to reach out. And Woke up the next day to this long email from this guy. And, you know, one thing led to another. We emailed every day. We hopped on the phone, started talking to each other. And we ended up meeting a few months later. And we were married um, within the year. (laughs) It went very quickly. We just knew. And he moved to Michigan. Um, We adopted each other's children. And then we kind of looked at each other one day in Michigan. And he was like, I'm not sure... I want to stay in Michigan. What would you think about sort of packing out a life for ourselves somewhere else? We landed in rural Tennessee, where we had our eighth and final child together in 2015. And then when the story kind of takes a turn again. So we lived in, in rural Tennessee for six years, bought this big property with 30 acres of land. And we had this dream of a simple life. And it was really, really beautiful um, packing out this life for ourselves and our eight children. And And it was beautiful until it wasn't anymore. Um, Lucas started to age and Lucas has severe autism and other numerous diagnoses. And as he aged and began to go through puberty, life just got really, really hard. Um, Ryan ended up in ER a couple of times with heart attack symptoms that turned out to be panic attacks. And when Lucas was born, I promised him that one day I would start a nonprofit in his honor. And I knew it was going to be called the Lucas Project, but I always, I always thought that that nonprofit would be directed towards helping the children with special needs. And as we went through this together, I realized that the child is only as healthy as the caregiver. And if nobody was taking care of the caregiver, um, these kids didn't have a chance. So I launched the Lucas Project out in rural Tennessee, and we began to give a monthly respite day to special needs families completely free of charge. And it was just a five-hour break where they could drop off their children and they could go take a nap or go shopping or whatever they wanted to do um, for a couple of hours. And that that went really well. Um, and then, you know, Ryan and I just continued to think, do, do we want to stay here and hack out this life in rural Tennessee? And would Lucas maybe have some better options if we move towards a, a more urban environment? And in 2018, um, we decided to sell our house and move towards Nashville um, in pursuit of more resources and support for Lucas. And we lived there for two years and just realized the South is really not the place to be um, if you're looking for special needs resources. And just really felt led to move back to Michigan where our friends and family were and to stop putting so much faith in the government for help. 
um, but, you know, put our faith in people who cared about us. And this past April, we made the move back to Michigan, where now we're living in a temporary house and building an accessible dream house for our family. And that's our plan right now. Yeah. So, so many things to unpack there with you, Jess, but I love the fact that uh, we have so much in common in our story. It's, it makes me know that we're not alone in our struggles uh, because I faced um, having a child with, with a diagnosis where the doctor said abort and mm-hmm. we said he's fearfully and wonderfully made and already having a special needs child. I knew what could possibly be ahead. But for us, um, we, we lost that son, but I do have a special needs child as well, which is when you, when you talked about the having a respite for five hours, listeners may be thinking, what, the, what is that? It's no big deal. You drop your kids off for five <laughs> hours to a special needs parent. That is the world mm-hmm. um, to have somebody that we know that can care for our child. You know, my son Connor had grand mal seizures. And so for the first several years of his life, he never stayed with anybody because we didn't know that, you know, how he was going to be, or he got sick all the time. It was just, it was just hard. And at that time I was living next door to my in-laws who both had brain tumors at the same time. And so we have these intersections in our story, but the same, but different. And Mm -hmm. so that just gives me hope that in the midst of the struggle that, that God is there and he's guiding and directing us. And, and I don't know about you, but I did not ever dream like, this is what my life is going to look like, but there's so many amazing things that because of the journey, we never would have had, um, like having a special needs child, I think restricted us from doing certain things, but then gave us opportunities for other things. And it's really hard to understand unless you've been there. But I know that, that you've experienced something similar. So I want to get into this documentary that you have coming out. Who would think in a million years, right, that that would be part of your story? Mm-hmm. So tell us, tell us about that. Um, Well, that goes back to the Lucas Project again. When we moved towards Nashville, we thought we just can't, you know, open up these respite centers wherever we move because we get restless. And so we had to sort of reframe what our mission statement was. And we reframed it where it now states we provide recognition and respite for special needs families. And part of that recognition aspect was this dream of a documentary that I had because I thought special needs families live their lives in isolation, typically, like we live behind closed doors, we we tell everybody we're fine, we're fine, we don't invite people into our spaces, because it can get a little bit messy and weird and strange, especially if you're not familiar with, you know, the world of special needs. So I just had this dream. And I wasn't exactly sure what what it was going to look like of this documentary that kind of peeled back the curtain, and exposed the lives of special needs families and started reaching out to some filmmakers in the Nashville area and um, had a couple of conversations and landed on one particular couple. It's a husband and wife team. The wife is the producer. The husband is the filmmaker and I'm the associate producer. And we just came up with this concept um, called unseen. And the tagline is how we're failing parent caregivers and why it matters. And I know a lot of people will say, well, why does it matter? And I believe as a society, you know, there's a saying, a society is only as strong as its weakest link. 
And these families are those weaker links and we need to strengthen them with the resources and the supports that they need. And they shouldn't be hiding out behind closed doors in their households because, you know, there aren't accessible playgrounds or, you know, accessible pathways or um, special needs ministries at churches. That was a huge thing in the South for us. There was one church that offered a special needs ministry. So it was kind of like, well, I guess we'll go here. Um, West Michigan is different. There are numerous churches. We have a really strong population here that recognizes the importance of including everybody and inclusion and especially, um, you know, the least of these. And I know some people kind of cringe even at, at that biblical term, the least of these, because, you know, don't call my child the least of these or whatever that may be. But those are Christ's words. And to me, the least of these is anybody who relies on the goodness and mercy of other people for their very life. Like my son, Lucas, could not live without us taking care of him. And that's going to be his reality for the rest of his life. He will require total care. So I don't think it's like a derogatory term. It's, um, you know, Christ had some pretty incredible words to say about the least of these, about how they will inherit the kingdom of God. So it's our job, especially as believers, to fulfill what he wanted fulfilled when it comes to this population. So yeah, going back to the documentary, it's just kind of exposing the hardships, the isolation, the anxiety, the exhaustion that special needs caregivers often face. And then Additionally, at the end, throwing out some ideas and resources for society to maybe implement to make the lives of these families a little bit easier and so that these families can feel a little bit more supportive or supported. Yeah, I'm so excited about that because it is hard. I don't know what the statistics are right now, but the last time I checked, the divorce rate for mm -hmm. special needs parents was in the high 80s. Mm -hmm. And that is because it is truly, it is, it's ex so taxing and exhausting. And um, when you're a constant caregiver and being in and out of the hospital and all of the things that go along with that, it, it is a very lonely road. But then I know at the same time, having experienced all of that, then there would also be special opportunities. I remember when Connor went to, we flew to Philadelphia for a surgery for Connor. And we prayed over that so much because there were only a handful of doctors in the country that could do the surgery that he needed. And every God was in so much of that trip to Philadelphia and all of the things that happened. Just the CHOP Hospital is, a, is an amazing facility and they brought a dog in for Connor and we had a window that had a crane outside of it. And that, that might not be a big deal to anybody, but knowing that Connor loved construction and like God was just mm -hmm. in so many details of it. And so he's opened up doors for us with Connor that we never would have been able to walk through had we not had him. But it's hard. Mm -hmm. it's, it's really hard being a caregiver of a child with, with special needs. And then um, just all of the things that you've been through losing your husband to cancer, but then God 
and 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 your new husband having gone through the same thing how cool is that that god brought you together and um blended this family and that's what you talk about in blended with grit and grace but i learned something new about you there that i didn't know is that you love to cook as much as i do mm-hmm. and that is just my happy place where i can i was like why did i start writing and blogging and podcasting about, you know, podcasting. What am I doing? Why am I not cooking? Because that's really, I don't know, there's just something really comfortable about being in the kitchen and feeding my people. And I noticed that you incorporated some of your recipes into your book. So Mm -hmm. tell me how you're writing this book about blending this family and then you bring in the cooking. So tell me about that. Um, well, I kind of had to fight for some of the recipes. Um, my publisher was sort of like, what? And I said, yeah, because it's, you know, it's my blended family. And this is, our family has always gathered around the table. You know, that's been the one constant within our family. And it was always a huge priority to me that we gather around the table at the end of the day. Um, and I just felt like that was going to be almost the imagery that sort of brought our family together. And I think my love of cooking isn't even... I do enjoy the whole process, not so much where we're, li- where we're living right now because I don't have my you know, kitchen and it's just like, eh, here's frozen pizza. <laughs> Let's sprinkle some spinach on top <laughs> of it and call it a meal. Um, I, d- I need like the environment and everything, but I'm more of a... I'm a foodie. And so... I like good food. And in order to get good food, I need to cook it. (laughs) So, um, because we can't afford to, you know, get takeout with a family this size, it would be outrageous. So I, I, and especially living in rural Tennessee, there weren't any restaurants um, around. And it was like, I'm craving this. Well, I guess I better figure out how to make that because there wasn't, there weren't any takeout options or, you know, anything like that. And then even living in rural Tennessee, we, raised chickens for meat and we had eggs and huge gardens and just understanding how much better fresh ingredients even make a meal taste. And so that's kind of how it all evolved. I wouldn't say I was like this huge, you know, person, or I wasn't this person who loved to cook prior to living in Tennessee, rural Tennessee, but it sort of arose out of a desire to eat good food. And I am very finicky when it comes to my food. So I just had to figure it out. Well, you and me both, sister, I am definitely a foodie. Love to uh, cook healthy meals for my family, but I want good tasting foods. And, you know, Connor went on a gluten-free, dairy-free diet 20 years ago. And the options 20 years ago were not what they are today. Mm-hmm. And so I had to start learning how to cook things. It, it, it came out of a necessity, but then grew into into a love. So I want I want to ask you, you know, if there's someone listening that has a, a special child or a, a blended family just struggling to make sense of you know, what God is doing in their life, what words of encouragement would you have for them today? I think it's really easy, at least it has always been for me to get really caught up in the big picture and kind of go into places that maybe you shouldn't go into. Um, And what I mean by that is I think the Lord wants us literally to take it step by step. And that's what the whole manna for the moment, just worry about today rather than, you know, 
thinking, oh my goodness, what is Luke's future going to look like when he's 40, 50, 60 years old? Just step by step. And even, you know, after my husband died, step by step, and he will open doors as long as we continuously move in obedience step by step and not try to get ahead of him. And because I'm really good at that too. I'm a control freak in trying to micromanage. And even now, you know, Lucas is 17 years old and I'm trying to control the situation. Um, like, should I buy a property um, to turn into a residential community for him? Or should I do this? Or should I do this? Or should I pursue adult foster care in our own home? Like I need to have a plan for a plan for a plan for a plan, <laughs> just in case the Lord doesn't come through. <laughs> but when I just release it, and I'm learning this as I'm getting older, when I release it and have faith, his plan is so always so much bigger and better than I could have ever anticipated or planned in my own willpower. Um, so I'd say at 44 years old, I'm getting there. But even as I'm you know, talking to you, I'm realizing, oh no, I'm still trying to control the situation. I'm just still, you know, looking at properties and looking into licensing regulations and filling out the paperwork and because we want the best for our kids. Um, and Absolutely. I don't think that that's so bad to prepare because I do believe that faith also includes action, but it's releasing it to the Lord and saying, okay, I'm going to do some preparation, but thy will be done. And that's hard. Yeah, it is. But like you said, his plans are so much better when we can submit to him and and just do the next thing that he asks us to. I'm a huge proponent of just to being obedient with the next step. Mm-hmm. Um, my son is 23 years old. And um, so I'm a little bit further ahead down the road and a little bit older. But, you know, I have stressed out over it. And when I have released it now, we're, we don't, we're not in all the programs that we were in with him because we did everything, single kind of therapy under the sun, schools, all the different things that we could do. And right now we're actually not doing anything with him. And it is amazing how he is blossoming mm-hmm. um, by just living in our home and, um, and being with us. It's just really, you know, I, I feel like the Lord is just doing more in him because I've let it go and I've tried, I've stopped trying to fix him and mm-hmm. heal him because I don't have that power anyway. Um, and even if God never heals him, he's allowed him to be this way for a reason, for his good and for God's glory. And so that's hard as a mom because we have all these hopes and dreams and desires for our kids. But you're right. When we can come in a place of submission and just say, not my will, Lord, but yours be done. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, it's even reframing my own thought process too, to consider it holy work. And that's been a journey too. I used to get so annoyed when, you know, Luke would need something else or he'd scream or he'd need a, a diaper change or whatever. It was like, ugh. You know, because there's no end in sight when it comes to his care. And I don't know, you know, how much longer we'll be doing this. I don't know. But that's part of the releasing. But in the meantime, I've had to reframe my mindset to recognize it as holy work. And I don't think there is any holier work this side of eternity than caring for somebody who cannot care for themselves, whether that's, you know, an elderly family member or a child with special needs. Or I think that is the work that Christ smiles upon. Um, and that's made my job easier, I think, to even picture like Jesus up there smiling 
like, well done. Just keep going. Well done. That is an amazing place to end this interview. So Jess, thank you so much for coming on the By His Grace show today. I'm going to put links to all of the things in the show notes. And I just want to thank you for sharing your story and for your writing. And I'm excited about your film project and we'll be sharing that as well. Great. Thank you. Hey, friend, before you go, did you know that there are still places all around the world where the name of Jesus has never been heard? That's why Operation Christmas Child is sending the gospel through simple shoebox gifts to the ends of the earth. The Greatest Journey follow-up discipleship program is teaching millions of children to put their faith in Christ and how to share that faith with others. As a result, entire communities are being transformed. National Collection Week is November 15th. To learn more about this global evangelism movement, visit SamaritansPurse.org slash OCC.